I invite children to be dismissed to junior church at this time, and I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 3 in your Bibles, and uh, along those lines, I want to give gratitude for the youth helping in the worship today, uh, Katie and Mercedes helping us sing, and so thank you, and what a great youth service last Sunday. Wasn't that a great youth service? Can we give them a round of applause? Heard from so many people throughout the week who just were worshiped God with the youth leading worship, and they just they just absolutely loved it, and so did I as well. The messages that the youth gave through uh, from the Creation Museum uh, that they went to and the Ark, uh, they were just great, great, great messages, and we celebrate them, and we want to include the youth in. Uh, worship leadership more frequently. So that was just, we, we have uh, two of them up here and Caleb's actually on the back. You can't see him, but Kim Minio couldn't be here today and Caleb stepped in and we thank him. And other youth have before, Ryan Coy's helped with that before too and we're just grateful. So we're gonna go to Philippians chapter three, verses two through 11 today. We looked at Philippians chapter three, verse one last week, which dealt with rejoicing in the Lord, rejoicing in the Lord. And today we look at verses two through 11 of Philippians chapter three. And I invite you to turn there, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. So Philippians is after Galatians and Ephesians and right before Colossians, we're almost ready to finish up Philippians. We will be finishing up Philippians the week before Thanksgiving, I believe, which will be before snow flies. Uh, No promises there, but um, hopefully. Today I want to look at the idea of loving God and being satisfied in Christ alone. You know, we sang that great song. I love the songs selected. You know, is he worthy of our worship and our praise? Is he worship of us glorifying him and serving him? A man one day was writing to the love of his life, right? When we think of love, we might think of our younger days with our spouse or girlfriend or boyfriend and the, the letters we'd write to them and how much we love them. And so let me make a connection with that and come back to loving God here in a moment. And being sold out for God, we'll come back to the idea of being just sold out for Christ here in a moment, making Jesus Lord of our life here in a moment. But a man one day was writing the love of his life. Her name was Betty. He wrote, my dearest Betty, I love you beyond words. Webster does not have in his dictionary the necessary vocabulary to explain the depth of my love for you. Thoughts of you dance across the portals of my mind. You are my all-consuming passion. So enraptured am I regarding my love for you. The Pacific Ocean would be like a pond if I had to swim it. I could do it as long as I knew you were awaiting me on the other shore. The heat of the Sahara Desert would never impede my progress to you, knowing that you would be the oasis that would refresh me when I arrive. There would be no inconvenience I wouldn't endure for you. Climbing Mount Everest would only seem like getting over an ant's hill if I knew you were at the precipice. All I'm simply saying to you, my darling, is that my love for you transcends time and space. Signed, Sam. P.S. I'll see you Saturday night if it doesn't rain. Yes, the 
problem there. He writes about how much he loves her. He would go through the Sahara Desert, climb Mount Everest, do all this to get to her. I'll see you Saturday night if it doesn't rain. And I'm sure you would agree with me. Sam was only full of a bunch of noise. Sam could talk a good game, but he didn't go very deep. While he could verbalize overcoming the elements to get to his love, a little bit of rain would keep him away. It's easy to verbalize being an overcomer. It's easy to say the words, I'm victorious. I've been made victorious in Christ. And if you are in Christ, that's true. But it's a whole different thing to not let the rain slow you down. It's a whole different thing to take your position as an overcomer and turn it into your practice of overcoming. We're preaching through Philippians. As we begin today, we are committed. As we begin today, are we committed to Christ? And are we committed to trusting in him? Trusting in faith in him. Faith in him for salvation. Or... Are we committed to trusting in what we do for him, for salvation? They're two different things. We're saved not by what you do. Ephesians 2.10, you're saved unto good works. The good works we do because we love Jesus, because we serve Jesus, because we are apprentices, disciples of Jesus. We, are, we do good works because he's the Lord of our life. We do, that. we do good works because our Savior and Lord, whom we love, calls us to do those good things. But sometimes we do it the opposite way. We think the good works will give us the salvation. We think the good works will give us position with Christ. Now, God does remember our good works. Don't get me wrong. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 says, the Lord is faithful. He remembers the good works we do. We, we, we know that he does remember our good works, but that's not how you're saved. Are we ready to suffer to know Jesus more? Paul addresses those subjects in today's passage. Paul addresses even suffering. He wants to suffer in order to know Jesus more. My theme today I always try to get the theme from the verses of the Bible. The theme is, in Christ alone, our hope is found. I know we're not singing that song today, but we sing it a lot. It's one of my favorite. Uh, I, want it, I want to have it at my funeral someday. Not tomorrow, but someday, um, in Christ alone. Uh, in Christ alone, our hope is found. To start, Paul warns them to beware. If you look at Philippians 3... Verses two through three, he warns them to beware. And we're gonna to get to that beware, that warning. But first, let, let's put this in context. Let's put it in context. As you've heard me say, a text without a context is a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. And I'm against a pretext for whatever you want it to mean. So we gotta put this in context. Last week, we looked at Philippians chapter three, verse one. It was a very encouraging passage. Rejoice in the Lord. He says to rejoice. We talked about, that wasn't last week, sorry. Last week we had a great youth service. Two weeks ago, we talked about rejoicing in the Lord. Looking at Philippians chapter three, verse one. A very encouraging message and, and, uh, or passage. But within verse one, he says, to write the same thing to you is no trouble for me. And I don't think the same thing was about rejoicing. The same thing is what we're gonna get into today. A warning. He's giving a warning, and we're going to come back to that. But, you know, this whole letter has been about joy and unity. You know, I believe 
That is important for the section we're getting into, the context letter. In verses in, in Philippians chapter 1, if you went back and looked at Philippians chapter 1, in verses 12 through 18, Paul reflected on his imprisonment. Yet he had joy. The gospel was advancing. He was in prison, but he had joy because the gospel was advancing. And then we have that well-known passage where he said to live is Christ. To die is gain in Philippians 1, verses 19 through 26. As you continued, as we continued in Philippians chapter 1, or if you reread it later, in verses 27 through 30, Paul wrote about living worthy of the gospel. By the way, he says that in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 as well. Living worthy, or actually the Greek is, is more literally worthily, worthily of the gospel. Living worthy of the gospel. And he's kind of writing about what does it mean to live worthy of the gospel? It means having joy. It means about unity. It means about sacrifice. And we see that idea of sacrifice in Philippians 2. Philippians chapter 2 is all about humbly serving the Lord. Then we come to Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, which we looked at yesterday. And it was about rejoicing. Now, why does the context matter? I already shared a little bit. Text without a context is a pretext, whatever you want it to mean. But... The context of the whole Bible is important. I've been giving you the context within this letter, but really this letter of Philippians fits within the Pauline epistles. Pauline meaning Paul wrote them. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. You can go over to First and Second Timothy and Titus, uh, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, the Pauline epistles. The Pauline epistles fit within the New Testament. The New Testament. Of the Bible. The New Testament follows the Old Testament. The Old Testament points to Jesus in every single book of the Old Testament. They are all pointing to Jesus. Going back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, the first uh, kind of prophecy of the Messiah, they are all pointing to Jesus. And I've actually gone through that before and even shown you how in every book of the Bible is all pointing to Jesus. All through the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. The New Testament Gospels write about Jesus. The book of Acts gives early church history. In fact, in January, we're going to start preaching through the book of Acts. I love the book of Acts. But I could tease you and tell you I'm going to recommend a church history book. And that church history book would be the book of Acts. It is the first church history book. And it's inspired by God. The epistles exhort us. But they also do teach theology. And we get our theology and our doctrine from the, especially the epistles. So we are in the epistles, which are letters, letters that Paul is writing. Paul is writing a letter to the church at Philippi, and he's writing to us. Uh, he exhorts them, and he exhorts us in unity, in joy, in Christian living. Uh, this letter is inspired by God. To be inspired means God breathed. God breathed. He's been writing about this, and we're going to continue about this. And, and, and he's about to tell us what threatens their joy and unity. He said, rejoice in the Lord. To say the same thing is no trouble to me in the previous verse. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Well, what would threaten their rejoicing? What would threaten their joy? What would threaten their unity? That's what he's getting into today. And that's why the context matters, because... He's been talking about joy. He's been talking about unity. He's been talking about sacrifice. And now he's going to get into a strong warning. 
It's really the most major warning in Philippians because Philippians is a letter of, of joy and unity. You go to some other letters, he has some harsh words to, to say to people. Look at verses two through three, either in the manuscript if you're following along or on your phone or tablet or on, in your Bibles. Uh, Philippians chapter three, verses two through three. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Now, what does he mean, no confidence in the flesh? What does he mean by this? I'm glad you asked. We're going to get into that. Stay tuned. Don't tune out. But first, let's take it one by one. First, he says, look out. Some translations say, beware, beware, look out. This is a warning. He's concerned. If you're at a baseball game and somebody says, heads up, you're watching for a fly ball coming into the stands. And if you're reading a book, you better look up. You know, it's attention getting. Paul is getting their attention. He's saying, beware. He's saying, watch out. He's saying, look out. But it's not for a flying hockey puck or a flying a baseball or a flying football. It's for, it's for people who are, who are take teaching and exhorting uh, bad teaching. He's concerned. Look out for the dogs, but why? Now, as, like, as you likely know, but if you don't, don't feel bad. Depending how long you've been reading the Bible and how long you've been coming to church, you may not know this, and that's okay. He's not talking about literal dogs. We in America, we love our dogs. We love our puppies. I was in Belize, Central America on a mission trip and I was giving a message and gave an illustration about dogs. Uh, they had a totally different view of dogs. I've been in Dominican Republic on a mission trip. Totally different view of dogs. The dogs are running around. They're just past. I reached down to pet one and somebody on our mission team, the leader said, don't do that. You know, these are, these are you know, wild dogs. You don't want to do that. In, in, in ancient times, in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, dogs are more considered pests. They, they, they were considered pests. It's a different uh, type of view. Dogs was a pejorative term for a group. It was a pejorative term. I, I believe he's referring to a group called the Judaizers. Anybody say Judaizers? Judaizers. Making sure you're awake. Good job. This group taught that they still needed to keep the Jewish law. That's why they're called Judaizers. They taught that you still needed to keep the Jewish law. You still needed to follow the law. Now, if somebody grew up with a Jewish background and they still celebrate certain feasts and things, that's, there's nothing wrong with that. But you got to know, that's not how we get our righteousness. That's, that's, not, that's not how we get our righteousness. It's not how we're saved. We don't have to follow that law. And if we're following that law thinking that's how we get right with God, uh, we got a problem. It's not how you get right with God. It's never how you could get right with God ultimately. So that's why Paul says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's referring to the circumcision and he calls them evildoers. You know, this was said on Acts chapter 15. There were many church councils in the early church, official church council, council of Chalcedon and council of Nicaea and council of Constantinople. But the first church council to settle an issue is in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 15. And they were settling the issue of whether new believers in Christ, especially Gentiles, people with a non-Jewish background, they were settling the issue, did they need to follow the law? And the answer was no. 
Jesus' half-brother James made the decision. Peter spoke and Paul spoke and different people gave testimony of all these Gentiles being saved. And they they pulled out Old Testament prophecies about how God was going to do this work. This is a powerful, powerful chapter. And then Jesus' half-brother James speaks up. Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people, they did not need to keep the Jewish law. Except... To abstain from sexual immorality. That's really part of the moral law. Abstain from meat sacrifice to idols. Abstain from things that were strangled, which actually dealt with the sacrificial process and the eating of blood. This issue was settled. And here we are in Philippians uh, probably 15 to 20 years after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, and people are still dealing with the same problem. That same problem is resurfacing. So Paul is addressing it. He also addresses it in Galatians. He's addressing it again. Watch out. These people are telling new converts they got to follow this whole law. So in verse 3, Paul says that they are the true circumcision. They would be the Christian, not the Judaizers, but he and the church at Philippi. Why does he say that? He explains it. Paul says they worship by the spirit of God. They glory in Christ Jesus. They do not put confidence in the flesh. In other words, they do not put confidence in externals like circumcision. Flesh, and that Greek word translated as flesh, can mean different things throughout the New Testament. In Romans, oftentimes it means the old sinful nature. Here it's referring to externals. They don't put confidence in externals to make them right with God. This is an internal thing, a change in the heart. In John chapter 4, verses 23 through 24, Jesus says they worship in the spirit. The time will come when you worship in spirit and truth. Paul is talking about a circumcision of the heart. And by the way, a very interesting thing right here, this verse in... um, Verses, uh, verse 3, Philippians 3, 3, mentions all three members of the Trinity. God, the Father, Christ Jesus, the Son, and the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. All three members of the Trinity are mentioned right here. So now let's look at verses 4 through 6. And we see if anyone could have confidence in the flesh, Paul could have more confidence in the flesh. But he doesn't. He doesn't. Look at verses 4 through 6. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Why does he have more? He's going to tell us. Paul was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. He's giving his his Hebrew pedigree right here. He's telling all about how how he kept it faultlessly. When Paul says that they should not have confidence in the flesh, he was the right person to address it. He was the right person to address it because he followed all those rituals. He followed them legalistically. In Paul's past, he had some achievements. He says that he has more reasons to have confidence in the flesh than others. And as I said, flesh in this context means human achievements. Verse 5, he says, circumcise the eighth day. That is how it was supposed to be in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3. He had not received circumcision in his 13th year as Ishmaelites, Ishmaelites did. 
nor later in life as many Gentiles did who converted to Judaism. That's why, you know, so he was circumcised as a baby the eighth day, whereas others who were uh, Gentile converts, that happened later. The Ishmaelites, it happened the 13th year. No, he is a Hebrew of Hebrews. He followed it litigiously. He is of the people of Israel. However, Paul will be getting into the idea of circumcision of the heart. In Jeremiah, in the Old Testament, 31, verses 31 through 34, and Ezekiel 36, 26, uh, it's written about someday there'll be a circumcision of the heart. It's a heart transformation. God, the Father, through the Holy Spirit, gives us a heart transplant spiritually. Paul says he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, all this stuff matters, not to you and me, but to, in ancient Judaism, it matters. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the second son of Rachel. You can see that in Genesis 35, 18. And, he went, and, and Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, is one of the elite tribes of Israel, who, along with Judah, remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty and formed the southern kingdom. Paul is from a very elite tribe. He can have confidence in the flesh. Paul says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now, I've read that so many times, and I always think, well, that just means he was a good Hebrew. You know, it's like somebody saying, I'm a Browns fan of Browns fans. Steelers fan of Steelers. No, that's not what it means right here. A Hebrew of Hebrews. This likely means that he has ancestry that is Hebrew. He was not a proselyte. Further, this could mean that he can read the scriptures in Hebrew and or that he spoke Aramaic, which was the national language of Israel in his day. He knew the original language of Hebrew. He could speak Aramaic, the national language. His ancestry is Hebrew. He says, as far as the law goes... He was a Pharisee, which means he followed the law litigiously. In verse 6, he says, as far as zeal, zeal, he persecuted the church. He proved his zeal for the uh, Hebrew system by persecuting the church. He was blameless in righteousness under the law. He knows what he's talking about. He is the right person to address this. But look at the next few verses. Paul counts his gains as a loss. For the sake of Christ. He counts it all as loss. Look at verses 7 through 11. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. All those gains he just mentioned, they mean nothing. They mean nothing because knowing Christ is better. Let's look at the rest. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, get that word, surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. We may or may not come back to that word. In order that I may gain Christ. He counts them the loss. He counts them all as rubbish in order that he may gain Christ. And he says, and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now look at verses 10 and 11. These are powerful. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. He wanted to know Christ more. He wanted to know Christ, even sharing his sufferings. He was eager to attain the resurrection of, of, from the dead. He, and he knew all those things, all those past achievements they were nothing. They couldn't give him the righteousness he needed. And they can't for you or me either. 
It's all about Christ. It's all about being in Christ alone. Our hope is found in Christ alone. The works we do, the attending church or small group or Sunday school, the Bible study we do, that's all to know him more. It's not to earn our righteousness. It's not to earn our salvation with God. You can't do that. Listen, if you could earn your righteousness, Jesus would not have had to go to the cross. He went to the cross because you and I, we can't do it. He went to the cross because the, the law that Paul kept litigiously couldn't do it. He went to the cross because we couldn't do it. We could not be saved on our own. He lived a life we could not live. Sinless. Jesus lived a sinless life, fully human and fully God. Then died the death we could not die. Going to the cross, taking the wrath of God in your place, in my place, the world's place, taking our hell because we could not do it. And that's what Paul recognized in Acts chapter 9 when Jesus himself encountered him on the road to Damascus and he was saved. He recognized what he was doing. He wasn't saved. He wasn't saved. And so now he's saying he counts it all as loss. Christ, in verses 7 through 11, Christ is mentioned by name or pronoun 10 times. In verses 7 through 11, I'm going to repeat that. Christ is mentioned by name or pronoun 10 times. It's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus. And our lives, they better be all about Christ too. All about Jesus. Verse 7, he's saying that for all those gains that he had mentioned, Paul counts them as lost for the sake of Christ. Jesus is better. In verse 8, Paul builds on this idea. He counts everything as lost or surpassing worth of, of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. It's all about Jesus. And I want to look at that. Was that verse eight? He says, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That word rubbish is an interesting word. It's somewhere in between excrement and the word that you're not supposed to say in church. Okay. <laughs> He is using a very extreme word to talk about how he thinks of his past achievements. And he is the right person to say it. He's the right person because he's experienced this amazing transformation and he, and he followed it. Knowing Christ is more valuable than anything else. A little girl came to her father and asked him for a nickel. The father reached in his pocket, but he didn't have any change. All he had was a $20 bill. He knew that was a lot of money. But he figured that his daughter had been a good girl. He decided to give her the $20 bill. The little girl said, oh, no, daddy, you don't understand. I want a nickel. No, honey, you don't understand. This is a bunch of nickels. This is a $20 bill. But the little girl didn't understand. She said, daddy, why won't you give me a nickel? He tried to explain. He tried to tell her how many nickels were in a dollar and how many dollars were in a $20 bill. She wasn't getting it. So she started crying and having a temper tantrum. So he took back the $20 bill because she doesn't... No, I'm just kidding. Um, she started crying and she said, Daddy, you said you were, giving, you were going to give me a nickel. Why won't you give me a nickel? That's exactly what we do. We settle for a nickel. When God offers us 20s, knowing Jesus is better than all those other human achievements. It's not that we don't do them. We do them as a follow-up because we love Jesus, because we desire Jesus, because we're apprentices of Jesus, because we're satisfied in Jesus, because we want to serve Jesus out of love, not out of duty. Notice he says that Jesus is Lord. Is Jesus your Lord? Is Jesus our Lord? 
Paul continues saying that he will count them as rubbish in order to gain Christ. Gaining Christ is far better. He, de- you know, he uses that strong word, like we said, rubbish, but why? Because in, in comparison to gaining Christ, they're nothing. They're trash, they're excrement. Gaining Christ is better. He wants to be found in Christ, if you see verse nine. He wants to be found in Christ. He wants to be found not having a righteousness of his own from the law. No, a righteousness that comes from faith, from faith in Christ. That faith is a trust. It's like you're trusting the pews to hold you up right now. That's a trust. He's talking about trusting in Christ by by not earning it, not by works, but by faith, by grace. In verse 10, Paul expands on this. He wants to know him more. He wants to know Christ. How much does he want to know Christ? It is all lost with the purpose of knowing him. The direct object of know is three things. How does he want to know Christ? He wants to know the power of his resurrection. The power of Jesus' resurrection. He wants to share in his sufferings. He wants to know by sharing in Christ's sufferings. He wants to become like him in his death. That's powerful. That's how much he wants to know Christ. Power first and then sharing in sufferings. He does not want power to avoid sufferings. It would be easy. You know, again, I got to reemphasize. He's in prison. He's shackled to a guard. We see that in Philippians 1. It'd be easy for him to say, I want the power. He could have said, I want to know Christ's power to get me out of this prison. He doesn't say that. He wants to know Christ's power to share in his sufferings. We would think the resurrection power can make us avoid sufferings, but it is not that kind of power. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 16 through chapter 2, verse 6, we see the power that raised Jesus from the dead. This power that raised Jesus from the dead. Does he think sharing in Christ's sufferings adds merit to his salvation? No. Absolutely not. He likely thinks it's only fair since Christ suffered so much. It's only fair since Christ suffered so much that we share in it as well. He wants to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to share in his sufferings. He wants to to become like him in his death. In verse 11, he closes up this part. Based on what he has written, he wants to attain, to attain the resurrection. Is this about him trying to earn his salvation? No, absolutely not. Remember, Paul wrote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we're saved by grace through faith, not by works, lest anyone can boast. This isn't about earning our salvation. He probably meant that he wanted the power that resurrected his savior and was within himself because of the indwelling Christ to manifest itself in his life for God's glory. I believe he's talking about persevering to the end. Sharing in Christ's suffering, sharing in Christ's sufferings means more than suffering for Christ, but allowing Christ's death to shape all of life. Let me repeat that. Sharing in Christ's sufferings means more than suffering for Christ, but allowing Christ's death to shape all of life. Allowing Christ's death on the cross for us and his resurrection to shape all of our life. There, I need to park you just for a minute. Just for a minute. Because there's a horrible, horrible teaching out there that if you live a good life for Jesus, you're not gonna suffer. That's not true. That's horrible teaching. 
That's horrible teaching. It's heresy. It's horrible teaching, just like the Judaizers that Paul was combating. It's horrible teaching. Some of the strongest, most godly men and women of God have suffered the most. There's also a horrible teaching that uh, karma, karma is false teaching. It's horrible. That we get what we deserve. That's not, that's not always true. There's a horrible teaching that if we're suffering, what did we do to, to, get, to deserve that? Sometimes, many times, God, well, God permits or causes all, all things. God permits or causes all things. So sometimes God is causing things we're going through, knowing that we need them to build us up. Amen. You can look at Romans 5 for that. God is not a genie in a bottle that if you just serve him and pray the right prayers that you're not gonna suffer. Sometimes, many times our prayers contradict each other. I gave this example in Sunday school, so I apologize to repeat it for Sunday school for my class. You know, we pray, Lord Jesus, give my kids a good day tomorrow. May it be a good day. May they not, may they not have any hardship, no hardship at all. Uh, Lord Jesus, I pray that they grow spiritually and grow in character. You see, sometimes that's a contradiction. God causes, if, if, if we never have any hardship, we're not gonna grow. We're not gonna grow at all. So oftentimes, that hardship we're suffering is God building us up. It's God bringing growth. Remember, all the saints of the Old Testament, I mean, all the saints throughout history, Old Testament, New Testament, throughout church history, suffered a lot, a lot, way more than we can even imagine. Let's take some applications. Can we only trust in Jesus for salvation and not in works? We see that in this whole passage, trusting in Jesus for salvation, not in works. Depending on your different denomination or church or religious background, this is hard to overcome. You think going to church adds merit to your salvation. It does not. It doesn't. I want you here, but this does not add merit to your salvation. I think coming to church, it helps you grow. It helps you grow spiritually. It's called a corporate spiritual discipline, but you're not, adding, you're not, you're not earning your salvation by coming to church or by doing good things. You do that not to earn your salvation, but to serve the risen Lord, to love Jesus, to love people. Can we only trust in Jesus for salvation and not in works? Or are we thinking that we live a good life and that's gonna take us to heaven? There are so many Christians who have been Christians for, and I use that word Christian lightly right here because uh, this type of teaching either means that they've experienced bad teaching or they don't know the Lord. But I'll ask them, they've been serving the church for many, many years, and I ask them, look, you know, God's calling you home soon. Uh, how'd you become a Christian? And they'll talk about, well, I've been a pretty good person. It's one of those things, and sometimes in my shut-in visits, my saints in their homes visits, I bring it up. I think, if I don't bring it up, who will, you know? Well, you know, I've lived a pretty good life. Again, it's all about Christ and his, and his death on the cross for our, for our salvation. Are we trusting in the external, such as baptism? baptism? Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is something we do in response to salvation. Are we trusting in church attendance? Are we trusting in Sunday school for merit with God? That's, those are the things Paul is rebuking. Do those to stay in tune with God. Do those things to grow in Christ. God does command some of them, but it doesn't earn our salvation. Can we count all of those externals as excrement compared to knowing Christ? Is knowing Christ the best? Is knowing Christ the best? Are we prepared to suffer for Christ? Those are things Paul addresses here. 
I, I, I encourage you in your devotional time this week to go through these and pray them and, and reflect. Where are you at? And I'd be glad to help you. Call me up if, if we can help you walk through these. Are we trusting that our righteousness does not come from works but faith in Christ? Uh, are we prepared to persevere to the end? I think we should all pray that. Lord, I'm going to bed. Tomorrow, wake me up as a Christian. Tomorrow, hold me close to you. Tomorrow, keep sin away from me and my family. Tomorrow, when I do fall and stumble and sin, convict me so that I repent publicly with gentleness without excuse. Pray that the Holy Spirit keeps you close to him. That's in our Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter six. You could look it up. Are we prepared to stay close to Christ when our family excludes us? That's happening in real time. Are we prepared to stay close to Christ if the Bible is made illegal? It is in many countries. I, I recently heard this on Renewing Your Mind last Monday uh, through R.C. Sproul. It wasn't R.C. Sproul teaching, it was someone else. But in China, there were many missionaries taking the gospel out and they were spreading the word and they had translated the Bible in China, in Chinese. And then eventually the Bible was made illegal. And then they remembered that a lot of the missionaries in previous times, they were buried with their Bibles. They were buried with their Bibles. And they wanted Bibles so badly, they dug up the graves to get the Bible. That's how much the word of God meant to them. Are we prepared to stay close to Christ if it is illegal to go to church? Can we stay true to Christ if our workplace calls us to deny part of the faith? Suppose our workplace will make us condone or endorse abortion. Some people are really struggling with that right now. Suppose we are a pharmacist and must sell the morning after pill or other abortifacients. There are Christians struggling with that. There are Christian doctors struggling with issues of transgender surgery and giving out medication. And they're writing into the Colson Center for Biblical Worldview and Alliance Defending Freedom saying, what do I do? You know, how do I stand for Christ right now? Can we stay true to Christ? Suppose we are a pediatrician, nurse, hospital employee, or counselor, and we are required to aid a teenager or a younger child transition to another sex. Can we stay true to Christ? Let's end with those. Let's pray. Dearly Father, I thank you for your word right here. An encouraging message, but also a very challenging message about staying true to you, about recognizing we're saved by grace through faith, not by works. And it's all got to be about you. It's all got to be about Christ. It all must be that Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Lord God, as I look upon the congregation, I pray that many are encouraged, Lord Jesus, that they've been trusting in you. And even though they haven't achieved uh, the works, that's okay. Because we're not saved by works, we're saved by you. There are others within the congregation, I'm sure, Lord, who have been trusting in their church attendance or their baptism or, the, or many other things, thinking they're saved by that. They're saved by those works. Lord Jesus, I pray that today would be the day they, they recognize it's about being in Christ. It's about being in Christ. It's about turning their life over to you. And I pray that today would be the day where they reach out to you and they pray to you and say, Lord Jesus, I've been trusting in good works for salvation. But today I'm turning my life over to you. I'm confessing, Lord, today that I'm a sinner in need of a savior and that you are that savior. I'm committing my life to you today and trusting in you. 
trusting in your grace, your unmerited favor, your free gift of salvation. Please come into my life and help me to live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. As I always say, uh, if you have questions about God and the spiritual life, talk to me. I'd love to help you. If you're one of those who, you know, you can't help it. You're just trusting in things like church attendance or baptisms or good works for salvation. Talk to me. I'd love to help you out. I'd love to talk to you. And I'd love to lead you to Christ. If you're said the prayer that I just prayed in that closing prayer, surrendering your life to Christ for his free gift to salvation, celebrate that. Angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. And we should too. God wants a relationship with all of us. And as they lead us in the closing song, the altars are open and we'd love to, to pray with you. Whatever's on your heart, come forward. We'd love to pray with you.